Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Never, never give up. That and more is what you'll hear from Dr. Newfeld today as we begin our final week of our current series, The Fellowship of the Gospel. So let's turn now to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to chapter 4, verse 1, as we go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. On October 29, 1941, as the Second World War was underway, Winston Churchill was called upon to give a speech to the students at Harrow School. It was a boarding school for boys in Northwest London, where he himself had attended when he was a boy. Here's the speech in its entirety. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never give in. That's all he said. His speech was over, and then he sat down. Now, that's probably some very good counsel. Unfortunately, it's a lot harder to do than it sounds, isn't it? Of course, everyone is able to be bold and persistent in the short term. You go on a diet, you stop smoking, you pursue a new goal, you resolve to end a bad habit, you decide to get a career. And whatever the thing is, everything is so exciting at first. But later, when the initial excitement has died down, it becomes so easy to give up. It's then when it gets tough that the character of a man or a woman really shows up. It's no different with your faith. Oh, yes, I know. There are people who will tell you that the Christian faith requires no effort. All you need to do is simply let go and let God. But that's simply not true. And it's certainly not what the Bible teaches. If you're going to grow to be all that Christ wants you to be, you're invited to a great battle, a fight. You will fight the world, your flesh, and the devil. You'll need to learn to say no to some things and to courageously say yes to others. You'll need to learn courage and self-control and humility. And in your fight, you'll have to trust Christ. In fact, it's the book of Philippians that has given us insight into this. When Paul first begins his missionary journeys back in those heady days in Antioch, everything was going his way. His home church in Antioch was not only the most rapidly growing Christian church in the world, but it was an international church made up of many people and many different nationalities. And in consequence of their growth, they felt called to take the gospel to the world. It was the church of Antioch that spawned the world missionary movement. They had fasted and prayed, and the Holy Spirit called out Paul and Barnabas as the very first ever missionary team. And they went with great fanfare and great success. The church of Jesus Christ was going global. But in the process, Paul enjoyed three great missionary journeys. Churches were started everywhere. But he also had a falling out with Barnabas. He encountered persecution. His own countrymen turned against him. And even though he was forming partnerships with churches like the Philippian church, the way forward has gotten more difficult. He is now in prison, and the Philippian church, one of his great partners, is beginning to be persecuted. They are charged with rebellion against the Roman Empire. What started with such great excitement now looked less exciting. You know, in a sense, that's the model for the Christian life. You know, I personally remember those precious days after I received Christ as my Savior and Lord. Every prayer I prayed seemed to be answered immediately. I remember once I had the hiccups all day. started to hurt. I got in the prayer room, asked God to take them away, and immediately they stopped. Every prayer, large or small, was being answered. God was alive, and he was alive in me. But then came my first struggles when God didn't answer my prayer right away, but he told me to trust in him. 
Then came an awareness of more sin in my life than I had ever imagined. Then came some failures. And that's when I started to learn the value of some of the instructions that we have found in Philippians, like in 127, to learn to walk worthy of the gospel, or in 129, that suffering was a part of the package, or in 212, to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, or in 214, to learn to obey without grumbling, or in 370, to count all gains as loss for the sake of Christ, or 313, to forget what lies behind and and strain to what lies ahead. All these verses speak about great effort. So let me get personal. Are you weary in your faith? Are you beginning to give in to weakness and temptations? Are you starting to grumble and complain, even to God for the way things are? Are you less zealous than you used to be? Then let me give you a word. Never give in. Never, never, never give up. Well, let's read our text. Philippians 3, 17 to 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walked according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, the theme of the text is taken up in that last verse, to stand firm. Paul knows how difficult it is for the Philippians to remain enthusiastic about their faith, especially now that these Christians were starting to be hated for their faith. Being a Christian has started to cost more than they had imagined. But they must stand firm, and so must we. But how do we keep that long-term perspective? How do you remain faithful, not for just one day, but year after year, always faithful, never turning back? From the text we've just read, let me give you four pieces of vital counsel. Here's the first. Pattern your life after excellent examples. That's how Paul started this paragraph. Join in imitating me, he says, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Later on, near the end of this book, Paul repeats that. In chapter 4, verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. But as many of you know, this is not the only time Paul has put this idea out. For instance, listen to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. I know that some people have problems with this. They say, why why doesn't Paul just say imitate Jesus? Well, he's already said that as well in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, where he told us to imitate the mind of Christ. But why isn't that enough? And by the way, it is not enough. That's because you and I need to see someone actually imitating Jesus. We need live contemporary examples. So as the Philippians were going through persecution, they could watch Paul. When he's put in jail for his faith, what does he do? Does he quit? Does he wonder how God could allow him to go through such a thing? No. Instead, he uses his prison time to begin to share his faith to the Roman soldier who's guarding him. You need to pay attention and in all circumstances, never give up on gospel proclamation. Now, it's not as if Paul is saying he's the only example. In verse 17, he mentions others. 
What other examples were available to the Philippians? Well, in chapter 2, there was Timothy, the man who considered the interests of the Philippians before he considered his own. And then one of their own, a deacon named Epaphrodites, who risked his life to encourage Paul. Paul wants the Philippians, who might be getting a bit tired, to imitate these examples. But how about us? Since Paul and Timothy and Epaphrodites are all long gone, well, Hebrews 13 verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Christian leaders must be chosen for two elements. They speak the word of God and they live a life which others can emulate. See, one of the reasons you find such stringent requirements for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and and in Titus chapter 1 is for this very reason. So first, if you're going to keep going, never give up. You need examples of faithfulness. And local churches must have leaders who both teach well and who model well. And second, if you want never to give up, you'll not only need examples of faithfulness, you'll need to keep away from the enemies of the cross. So in verses 18 and 19, Paul in tears tells us of those who walk as enemies of the cross and then adds descriptors of what he's talking about. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You know, Bible teachers will often ask, I wonder who these people actually are. You know, some believe them to be the very same people of whom Paul warns in the earlier part of this chapter, that is, the Judaizers. You know, that makes good sense because the phrase, their God is their belly, well, that seems like a reference to those who demand Jewish dietary restrictions as a part of the gospel. You know, perhaps all that Paul is saying, that they keep on concentrating on the things that the Judaizers concentrate on. Now, that is possible. But it's not necessarily the case. And in context, I think it's different. See, even though we might not be absolutely sure of who Paul is referring to, we can still take this warning very seriously. See, when we come back, we'll see how the warning Paul gives us can keep us from losing our zeal for the gospel. Never, never give up. That's a great motto for the Christian life. No matter what age we're living in, following Christ will not come without sacrifice, perseverance, and struggle. If we want to keep a long-term perspective in living out our faith, it's important to have people in our lives who model what that looks like. But it's also just as important to avoid the influence of people who might lead us astray. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will help us understand who these people might be. I hope you've enjoyed today's Back to the Bible Canada message with Dr. John. If you have, I want to encourage you to check out a new weekly video Bible teaching program featuring Dr. John that can be viewed on backtothebible.ca or by visiting the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And if you want to receive notice each week of a new episode and receive the accompanying study guide, you can sign up online. The first series presented and can be viewed in its entirety is Hope in Dark Times. And Dr. John's second and new series based on Revelation chapter 1 to 7 is entitled To the One Who Conquers and Has Already Begun. So check it out now at backtothebible.ca or on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information or to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, 
Would you call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca. Let's see what we can learn from Paul's warnings about those who are enemies of the cross. First, Paul speaks of those whose God is their belly. Another way of saying that is to say their appetites dictate their behavior. Their actions are dictated by their senses. They are sensual individuals whose bodily passions dictate their lives. Watch out for people like that. They will take away your commitment to suffer for the gospel. The second thing that marks them is that they glory in their shame. You know, the word glory can also refer to boasting. So, for instance, when you glory in the Lord, you boast of him, you're proud of him, you find joy in what he has done. You know, Kathy and I had a conversation just the other day about people of our own age. She said it was common among men, I I felt that keenly, when they reach my age to wonder if they've ever accomplished anything. And I said, "I I believe I've accomplished nothing but filthy rags. But at my age, I'm really overwhelmed at what Christ has accomplished through me. I mean, I think that's what it means to boast in the Lord. And by the way, I'm not always quite that spiritual. But these people gloried in something else, their shame. Most Bible teachers here believe this refers to sensual excess, especially sexual ones. Of course, the pagan world in which these believers lived was filled with every sort of sexual expression. And it's against this background that we find so many of the New Testament warnings. Take, for instance, the warning in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 5. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Listen, if you think our day is unique with its internet porn and dating sites that can fulfill every sexual appetite, This is not unlike the ancient Roman world. For wherever true godliness is lacking, sexual sin comes rushing in. Listen to the words of Malcolm Muggridge. Sex is the mysticism of the materialist society, with its own mysteries and its own sacred texts and scriptures, the erotica that fall like black atomic rain on the just and the unjust alike, drenching us, blinding us, stupefying us. Paul says, these people glory in this stuff. And if you let them, you'll keep your eyes diverted from them and keep your eyes on the cross. And then, says Paul, there's a third thing that marks these people. Their minds, that is what they think about, are on the things of earth. Whatever you talk to them, they're completely consumed in the things that are passing away. Yes, they think about their bodily needs and their sexual appetite, but also, well, let's put it in our terms, about business and cars and sports and vacations and houses and lands and shopping and selling and the weather and the things they like and the things they dislike. And all these things are of this earth and will pass away. They are of the earth. They belong to the earth. They live for the earth and they think about this earth. And this is where we need sober appraisal. Paul says their end is destruction. You know, destruction does not mean these people will physically die. I mean, we're all going to do that. But when 2 Thessalonians 1.9 speaks of that which is coming on the unjust, it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You know, Paul is saying that whatever these sensual people do and whoever they are, they are destined to eternal damnation. And that's their end. That's how their lives are going to turn out. Do you see how different these people are than Paul and and Timothy and Epaphrodites? 
Evidently, some of these people at one time professed to be Christians, and Paul says, I speak of this, and when I do, I'm weeping. You know, when the ancient Christian preacher John Chrysostom preached on this text, he said, and I quote, Nothing is more incongruous in a Christian and foreign to his character as to seek ease and rest and to be engrossed with the present life, and that's foreign to our profession and enlistment. Your master was crucified, he preached, and do you seek ease? Your master was pierced with nails, and do you live delicately? Do these things become a noble soldier? For the cross belongs to a soul at its post for the fight, longing to die, seeking nothing like ease. But there are those whose mind is on earthly things. Let us build houses, they say. Where, I ask? On earth, they answer. Let us purchase farms on the earth again. Let us obtain power again on the earth. Let us gain glory again on the earth. Let us enrich ourselves. All these things are on the earth, end quote. You know, it's not as if it's wrong to buy a house or to build a business. But if this is where our affections lie or our loves, the great passion of our soul, if the business is an end in and of itself rather than the advancement of the kingdom and the joy of knowing Christ, then you're an enemy of the cross. If today your appetites rule you, you're an enemy of the cross. But Paul's point is not to condemn this. His point is to speak to believers who never want to give up on their Christian life, and he knows how much we need to fight for our sanctification, our growth in holiness. And if you want to win that fight, you need to pattern your life after excellent examples and keep away from the examples of those who are really enemies of the cross. And with that, he adds another bit of instruction. Third, let the realities of our citizenship direct your longings. Look again at verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. You know, we've already noted that the Greek city of Philippi was an outpost colony of Rome, meaning that all citizens of Philippi were also citizens of Rome. We noted that Paul played on that theme way back in Philippians 1.27. There we saw that the phrase manner of life actually refers to citizenship. So literally, only behave as citizens who are worthy of the gospel. And now he returns to this theme. You know, in a way, here, he's asking the question, what's your address? The answer, my place of belonging is in the kingdom of heaven. And with that, for all true believers comes a sense of deep longing. Our citizenship reveals where our deepest longings are. And those longings simply do not belong to a world where things are passing away. Here Paul refers not only to the second coming of Jesus, but also to the transformation that will occur in us as a result of Christ's second coming. I love what Murray Harris says about this. Paul is saying then that in place of an earthly body that is always characterized by decay and dignity and weakness, the resurrected believer will have a heavenly body that is incapable of deterioration, beautiful in form and appearance, and with limitless energy and perfect health. Once he experiences a resurrection transformation, man will know perennial rejuvenation since he will have a perfect vehicle for God's deathless spirit, a body that is invariably responsive to his transformed personality. And with that, we know that in order to be faithful for the long term, your eyesight must be set on the future hope. You must think about your citizenship, and you must dream and imagine the glory that lies ahead. You need reminders of the tragedy of trading in future for the present. You need to believe that today 
You're like a foolish child content to play in a muddy backyard, not knowing what a sunny day at the beach looks like. You must contrast this present world with the one to come, and you must imagine how precious it is to see Jesus and to respond with ease to him for all eternity. See, without a view to the future, you will fail in the present. Who goes to university and writes tough papers and exams without a view to graduation and a good job? Who puts money into a retirement account without a view to a time when they can live off that money they are denying themselves today? Who goes on a diet and exercise regimen without a view to a better-looking body that will respond with greater vigor to what is demanded? And who lives the Christian life with the demands for cross-bearing and suffering and humility without a view to what lies ahead? Christian, hear me now. Unless you fix your eyes on the promises yet to come and imprint them, tattoo them on your mind, you will not fight for the life of Christ. So then pattern your life after excellent examples. Keep away from the enemies of the cross who seek a lower life and whose passion is for anything but the gospel. Let the realities of your citizenship direct your deepest longings. And then there is one more thing. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says tenderly, My brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm then. Hold your ground. Never, never, never give up. John, never, never, never give up. That's a great expression. It's a challenging one. But life can be tough, like you said, and things can mount up and we can become weak sometimes or overwhelmed. What do you suggest we do within our own lives, within our own spiritual journey to overcome this weariness? Yeah, I know that the rest of Philippians 4 does deal with that, and I'm going to do that. But I do want to draw to the hearer's attention the idea that discouragement is such a great enemy of the Christian. I mean, we can become discouraged by our own lack of progress in our faith, and and some believers just think themselves unworthy to carry on, as if their past record uh, actually counts against them and not having led it under the blood of Christ. I think we need to repeat after Paul, forgetting the things that lie behind, even the failures that we've made, and pressing on to the goals set before us. I think we've not need to overcome self-discouragement and believe that if God is for us, who can be against us? So gain that sense of confidence from the promises in Scripture. Standing firm is essential for long-term success. We all face struggles as we pursue living a godly life in Christ. At times, we may even feel like giving up. But Paul's words and warning to the church provide us an important reminder of how we are to continue to remain focused and motivated. Be sure to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in Philippians, The Fellowship of the Gospel. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's happening. If you've listened to Laugh Again in the past, Now the opportunity is available to not only hear Phil, but to see him in action. This month, we make the official launch of Laugh Again TV. Five minutes of storytelling, laughter, hope, and joy all wrapped into a video message from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. So check out Laugh Again TV at laughagain.ca or by going to the Laugh Again TV channel on YouTube. A new inspirational, joy-filled program every week. If you check out Laugh Again TV on YouTube, remember to subscribe to the channel for free 
and never miss another episode. Thank you for continuing to support in these challenging days. Your donations keep this unique ministry alive. To learn more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.